Hello, everyone, and welcome to the last episode of the year for the Michigan Story. And to cap off the year, we have a very exciting guest. Um, we've had so many amazing guests, so many amazing episodes this year, the inaugural year for this podcast. Um, but we're going to cap it off this year with an amazing Michigan story from former Michigan student and current Michigan professor Marcus Collins. Yeah, so Marcus Collins is going to share with us today the truest definition of a Michigan story. And through this podcast, he will touch on his time teaching at Ross, his work in the startup space, and the amazing opportunity he had to work with Beyonce. So with that, we're very, very excited to bring to you the last episode of 2019. Thank you for sitting down and talking to us today. We're really excited to hear more about your story and your background. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so you are a Michigan alum and now a Michigan professor. And to start out, can we bring it all the way back to when you were first here at Michigan as an undergrad? Yes, indeed. So I'm a, a two-time Michigan Wolverine. I was here undergrad and uh, 97. Um, studying material science engineering over the College of Engineering. Um, and then I came back to get my MBA at the Ross School of Business uh, in 2007. Okay, awesome. And yeah. then what was that time like for you? Because you were an engineering undergrad, but I remember you saying one time in a speech that you gave that you spent just as much time in class as you did kind of working on music. Indeed. So I, you know, I was in, I, I'm born and raised in Detroit, product from the city, which is very much a part of who I am, and my identity, if you will. And growing up, I, I excelled in math and science. So what made sense, at least in that time, is that if you like math and science, then engineering just seemed like a very natural progression for you. I spent every summer in high school in Ann Arbor at the Summer Engineering Academy here at the University of Michigan. So I had been, you know, one may say groomed to be going into engineering, but my real passion, what I love to do is I really love music. I played piano in church, I sang in choirs, um, I played in bands, like had a singing group, like I had really facilitated myself in the world of, of music. And I thought that that's what I would do. That's where my dreams and hopes were. But once I graduated high school and I was starting college, you know, in my mind, it's like, I need to be an adult. It's time to grow up, Marcus. Like, those were hobbies. At least that's what my parents told me. Those are hobbies. This is real, real life. So it's time to get serious. So I came into Michigan thinking I'm going to be serious about being an engineer. After my first year of school, I didn't necessarily love it. I loved, I loved college, but didn't really like school so much. Um, and I went back to my parents that summer after my freshman year. I said, Mom and Dad, I don't think that, like, engineering's for me. And my mother, who was an academic, was like, just wait until you take, you know, classes within your 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 degree, your your major, you you're really into it. Okay. So I took classes in, in college of engineering in materials, which I was into. And while I my interest was peaked, like I was curious about it, I didn't like love it. If anything, I was excited about polymers, the polymer chains, right? These mm-hmm. network things kinda of happen together, these carbon chains. I like that. I didn't like love the concept of doing engineering, at least in its traditional sense as a career. So my GPA represented that as well. So I wasn't doing very well scholastically. So I decided to take classes at the the school of of music just to offset my failing GPA on the engineering side. And I took a music theory course first. And I remember falling in love with major sevenths. I was like, yo, this is what... 
this is what I've always got excited about music. This complexity, the, the color of the chord changes, to me, just felt like this is why I've always loved music, kind of the way it made you feel, this evocative sense to it. And I remember taking a composition class after that, and I was like, oh man, I want to be a songwriter. That's <laughs> it, like, that's what I want. That's what I see myself doing every day when I wake up, writing songs. And I went home and told my parents that, and they were like, yo, you must be crazy. Ain't no way. <laughs> Ain't no way that's going down, buddy. Like, no, 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 not happening. We fought the Battle of Jericho that summer, and I failed that battle, and I ended up going back to to Michigan in the fall to finish my engineering degree. But I spent all my time, not all my time, I spent the majority of my time where I was not in the classroom in what's now known as the Duderstadt, but was then called the Media Union. There's a recording studio there, and I'd spent all my time writing and producing music, I just outside of partying, truthfully. <laughs> but if I wasn't being socially active, uh, I spent my time writing and recording music because that's what I really wanted to do. And I'm thankful for that. I really... I developed my craft, or I started to develop the foundation of my craft. I do regret that I wasn't uh, that I wasn't more open-minded about what the possibilities of engineering were, at least on the material side. Uh, but I regret nothing fully. Yeah, and then you ended up turning that you know passion for music into your first career, right? Yeah. So I I graduate right after 9/11, and the market is shot. You know, the I, and there are people who graduated the semester before me because I took longer to graduate, <laughs> who, who graduated uh, before me who were my same year who weren't working as engineers. Like, you know, I literally had a friend of mine who she was way smarter than me. She was a material science engineering major as well. And the gig that she had got rescinded because of the economy. And she was working at Macy's. And I was like, yo, like if that's reality, then I just might as well pursue the thing that I really wanted to do. I might as well go into music. So I did a, an internship at Universal Music Group, which I didn't love, but it was the first introduction to the music industry. Um, I came back to Ann Arbor and ran a recording studio for one of my professors in the School of Music. So we had two studios here. I ran Studio B, which was called Perfect Balance. And essentially, I was, record, I was doing the recording sessions for people who wanted to record demos or voiceovers, etc. Lots of, lots of failed musicians. <laughs> That's awful because I was one of those people too. Uh, but they would come in, they'd buy session time, I'd record the session for them, and once they were done, I'd record my own stuff. Right, So I'm like writing and producing stuff, I have like basically access to a studio anytime I want it, if it wasn't booked, and I'd call my friends who lived in Detroit to come up and like, let's record, like let's, you know, let's, uh, let's be musical. And that really started what would become a record label. So I'm doing this this, this venture where I'm working on my craft and realizing that, you know, I like the music side, but didn't really care much about the business side. Mm -hmm. And if I were going to do this, I need someone who really understands business. So I called up another ex-engineer, a uh, good friend of mine who was engineer, who didn't want to do it anymore, who his offer also got rescinded. Um, he was working at American Express at the time, but not in the role that he wanted to do. <clears throat> um, so I pitched him this idea, this dream of like, man, what if we started a company? Um, and he was into it, so he packed his bags from Miami, from from uh, Florida, I think it was in Orlando, and then moved to Michigan, and we started Muse Recordings, which was on some days a record label, other days a production company, <laughs> some days a development. And we were all over the place. We didn't have any real guidance on on a business strategy, uh, but you know we were fortunate enough that there was one small lane that opened up for us. This idea of pairing up becoming artists with brands um, that that allowed us to A, make money, but also uh, 
grow the footprint of what we're trying to do. And with those brands and those up and coming artists and now I guess your career is very connected to brands and to people who are very notable. How did you first get connected to A, the artist yeah. and then B, the brand? So this is this is a part of the story that I never get to tell very much because it's a little bit more long-winded uh, from the ones that I typically talk about the, the background of my career. But so essentially we had just one good idea. I mean, outside the music part, we had one good idea. And that was, we were Michigan alum. We know the power of the Michigan network. Mm -hmm. And uh, we thought, well, one thing we know about Michigan is that while we are extremely celebratory and very, very proud of ourselves, as we all know, we don't really celebrate homecoming. There is no like homecoming event. There's the game, but there's no like parade. There's nothing homecoming that's celebratory. So we thought to ourselves, what if we sponsored the Michigan homecoming in 2004? Now, sponsor, I said it with big air quotes, there's no sponsoring it, but what if we did some programming for it and we became the place where you went to if you wanted to have a good time that summer, or that, that, that spring, that, spring, that uh, homecoming, and we'd use that as a way to market what was going to be our first album release. <clears throat> so we had the whole weekend planned out on Friday. We're doing a, a, a voter die party at the Starbucks on State Street and... Uh, What's that? Secret of Liberty. Mm -hmm. On Saturday, we're doing a tailgate at um, at Pizza House, and then on Sunday, and then Saturday night, we're doing a, a concert with John B, who was a big R&B artist at the time, and we're doing a sign a, a, a meet and greet signing with him on Saturday. So on Sunday, that that was the weekend, and all of it was going to be sponsored by Muse Recordings. And of course, when John B performed, we had our artists open up for him, right? So that was the whole plan. That was the only idea we had. So we, we really hyped up this party, this voter die party, which we did with Sean Combs, P. Diddy's voter die campaign to get people, get more young people registered to vote. So we throw this party at Starbucks and we completely pack it out. Like both floors packed out, DJ spinning. There's like a line of people trying to get into the place. And fortunately for us, the VP of sales for the district, for that region at Starbucks, uh, was at was there that night and she was like, Yo, who are you all? Like <laughs> what's going on here? There's a guy with Mike and Marcus and we were starting this record label, blah blah blah. And they're like, you know, so what like how can we get involved? Like, yo, this is amazing. Like how can we get involved in this? And we said, Well, you know, we're throwing a, a release party, an album release party at the Yacht Club, Detroit Yacht Club, um, next month in November. Um, we'd love to have you part of it. It's like, well, how can we be part of it? It's like, well you can write a check. You know, you know? <laughs> and they're like, hey, you know, we're actually opening a store right on on um, Jefferson, right at the entrance of the Yacht Club. Like, we love to get involved. So we had Starbucks, like, partially underwrite the release party, right? And, like, that, that's how everything started. It started with that sort of serendipitous happening. And from there, we started doing some performances of some of the, the Starbucks that this, uh, this VP of sales of the region um, ran. And from that, we ended up meeting folks at McDonald's. And one of our songs got licensed on a McDonald's commercial, which was super cool. Um, we did a tour with the NBA Rhythm and Rims. Uh, the National Basketball Association and Sprite does this tour. So we opened up for like uh, Jagged Edge and, and uh, Keisha Cole. Like all these things were happening uh, serendipitously, which was awesome. But the challenge is that because they're serendipitous, we didn't have a strategy for it. Mm -hmm. So we couldn't A, replicate it, nor was it sustainable. 
So once we tried to go back to the trough to get these partnerships happening again, it was like, we're good. No thanks. Right. And you know, the dollars, what was the, the, the benefit for our company was that we had a lot of things intact. Therefore the costs were very low for us. <clears throat> and what we realized once I went to business school is that that's just arbitrage that we were taking a cut of something. But once you remove the middleman, that margin is gone. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of what happened with us here. Um, the record industry at the time was starting to decline. So the checks that were too small for Sony to work with this particular brand or this particular thing were just right for them. And we were out of a business or at least our business began to unwind very quickly. So we had to figure it out what we we're going to do. Um, I decided to go to business school to figure out this disruption in business, in music particular, which was digital. And uh, my business partner decided to look, look at the disruption that was happening in politics. And he ended up joining the Obama campaign. Um, so cool. It's super cool. It's 2007. So he did that. I went to business school. Um, and you know, our paths sort of kind of uh, diverged in that way. Um, but still thinking about this, this understanding of how do you connect people to things and people to people. Right. And then you go to business school and you mentioned kind of records were declining. But yeah. then digital music was on the come up. Right? Exactly. So I went to business school saying, I want to work for Apple. Like, full stop. That's it. I want to work for Apple. Like, this, this, that's no other company I want to work for. So I came here uh, and only recruited for Apple. It's the only company I recruited for. I did some, I did. The, I did some interviews the summer beforehand. I met some really cool people, um, but Apple was really where I wanted to work. So I ended up getting an internship at Apple, doing partner marketing in iTunes, which was just like <laughs> pie in the sky. Couldn't get any better than this. So I go to Cupertino. I work uh, at I iTunes, managing our Nike sports music relationship, particularly the Nike Human Race, which is killer. It was the first time Nike did the Nike Human Race. Um, but I worked with my counterpart on the Nike side, happened to be Omar Johnson, who would later go on to be the CMO of Beats by Dre. Uh, so we were doing like these Nike run mixes with a DJ A-Track, who, um, was, who was Kanye's DJ at the time, um, De La Soul, like all these like, like we did like, we curated run, run uh, workout playlists for uh, Serena Williams, like all these really cool things. So I managed the, the iTunes relationship with the Nike side. So Nike did all the all the the, the legwork, and we worked with them to like position it in the store and how do we, how do we uh, how do we sell it? And that was super cool. Really great summer. Um, at the end of the summer, so I was like, "Yo, all right, what's good?" Like typically in yeah. NBA, you have a really successful summer. You get an offer to come back at the end of the year, right? That's or at the end of the school year. So that's what I was thinking. My boss was like, "Man, you crushed the summer, dude. You did." A really, really stand-up job. Like everyone's super pleased with you. Um, however, we're on a hiring freeze because this is now 2008, and yeah. the industry exactly yeah. recession, right? Right at the top of the recession. So we're in a hiring freeze. My boss says, however, since you're technically an employee, we can hire you right now. And I was like, word. I was like, but I have a whole another year of school to finish. And he says, well, you can just work remotely and just kind of go back and forth to Cupertino as need be. And I was like bet sign me up mm -hmm. for that so i spent my last year of business school working at apple putting things in the world things in the world for like with like target and best buy like it's unreal experience just unreal like you just think i i couldn't even imagine that that would be the possibility um so i'm beyond grateful that that's able to happen the way it did yeah that's super cool um something i'm curious about is how you went from that to working with beyonce i feel like 
Yeah, so the Beyonce thing was super cool. Um, so I, at the end of my tenure with Apple, um, now we're in 2009, um, I'm in New York trying to figure it out, just trying to figure out what I want to do. Um, I don't want to be in New York, no one to work in the music business. I'm meeting all these people. Like I ended up having meetings with like Leo Cohen and Russell Simmons and Kevin Lyles. Like these are like these are the goats. This is yeah. Def Jam. <laughs> these are the goats, right? Um, Kadar Massenberg, who used to be the president at at, um, at Motown, he's the one who founded uh, Neo Soul or coined the phrase Neo Soul. Like all these like major people that I'm meeting, <clears throat> and I happen to meet Matthew Knowles. And this is the interesting part here. I got time, so I will go to it. So um, I like I. I met a lot of people, and a lot of things didn't didn't manifest right. It didn't come to bear. Um, really close calls, but the offer never came. Something always fell through. So I had gotten really, I got disappointed. Like I was, I was disappointed. It started to like really doubt myself. Walking the streets of New York in the middle of a recession. Luckily, I had worked at Apple for a full year, so I had money to, mm. to burn or you know, <laughs> money to to live on. Um, so my wife's cousin used to work at at, at um, Ticketmaster and Ticketmaster was the major partner for all of Beyonce's touring and she says well you know hey I know someone who works at Beyonce's record label and management company you know I love to introduce you like totally introduce you like bet introduce me sweet let's do that so she sends an email reaches out to him it's like hey meet Marcus he's a recent MBA graduate worked at iTunes a record company blah 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 blah, blah. here he is so she sent the email over and we don't hear back. But she tells me that, hey, I didn't hear back from so-and-so, but I did get a bounce back on his email saying that he no longer works there. I was like, oh, great. Well, no worries. I had been used to disappointing him at that time, so no big deal. But what we later found out is that the general manager received all his forwarded, all of his emails, right? Like mm -hmm. all his email got forwarded to her. So she responded to the original email saying, hey, thanks for introduction, Lauren. Um, So-and-so no longer works here, but like, we'd love to meet Marcus though. And I was like, yo, this is what's up. Beyonce. And this is right. So th and this is how I've been told. Uh, so, so they're like, all right, so they're like, bet. So cool, we love to meet Marcus, bet, let's do it. Let's go do something. So I get an email at the beginning of the day, say on a Wednesday, I'm going into the city, middle of the day on Wednesday saying, hey, can Marcus, can Marcus, can you come in and meet today? I'm like, cool. Now, at the time, I got on a polo shirt, some jeans, and some flip-flops, right? Like, I'm doing some consulting work for uh, an agency in the city. So, like, I could just dress where I want to dress. And typically, I was like, I'm just going to wear this because it's the music industry, you know, whatever. Yeah. But in my mind, I was like, you know what? I'm really going to, you know what? I'm going to impress these people. So, I went to H&M. I bought a suit <laughs> off the rack. No lie. Bought a suit off the rack. Bought a pair of shoes from Banana Republic. Suit off the rack. Republic. I went and got like my my portfolio pr printed up and spiral bound. Like I'm gonna really impress these people. <clears throat> and I this just will be a conversation. This is just a, like let's just talk. Mm -hmm. I come in and it's a five person interview. Like it's me in a semicircle of five people who are asking me questions. I'm like thank God I put this suit on right. Uh, so do the interview and then I'm asked to go to Houston to go meet Matthew Knowles, right. And now this is the story that I've been told after the fact, that when I met with a team, they said, hey, Matthew, we met this guy. He's an engineer undergrad. He uh, started a music company. He has an MBA. He works at iTunes. And the guy is black. And Matthew's <laughs> like, no way. This guy does not exist. No way. 
Put him on a plane and bring him to Houston. I, I had to see him in the face. I had to see his face. There's no way this guy, this guy is a myth. There's, he's fabricating something. This cannot be true. Uh, so I go meet Matthew, and we really hit it off. And Matthew's like, yo, you should, you should run this thing. You should run digital for us. And, you know, there's more detail than that, but that's kind of the gist. And three weeks later, I got an offer to run digital strategy for Music World Entertainment, which represented Beyonce. And I got a chance to work fairly closely with her on her digital efforts, which was super cool. That is really, really amazing. It was super um, cool. I know we don't have too much time left, yeah. so I kind of want to tie into something that you just mentioned about when you met Matthew Knowles. Um, the part of the thing that he said was, and that you were black, and in one of your TED Talks that we listened to, it was you talked about like, being the black sheep and kind of growing up and having that always be present in your life. Yeah. Do you think like uh, maybe you could kind of touch on how that like affected your career, your choices that you made kind of going into this field? Sure. Um, you know, I, I've always been hyper aware of, uh, of my blackness because of the city I grew up in, Detroit, predominantly black city. Um, went to public schools my entire life, so predominantly black schools. Most of my friends were black um, during the school year. But in the summer, my parents were, were pretty, uh, pretty mindful about the activities that my brother and I did. Um, you know, I spent a summer abroad in Sweden when I was 11 years old. Um, I go to Summer Engineering Academy mm-hmm. every yeah. summer when I was in high school. Um, I played in jazz bands, so I go to Blue Lake, right? Um, I was a swimmer competitively. It's so, like that's the sport that my brother and I did since I was six years old. So <clears throat> I was always like living this dual, this duality in my life in that I'd be there were like my people and there are my people. There are my people who look like me and we subscribe to a lot of the same cultural characteristics. There are people who didn't look like me but still subscribe to a lot of the same cultural mm-hmm. characteristics but they were different than the network people that I was with on the other side. Um, and the, the thing, the tension that always existed is that when I was with white people in swimming and Sweden and <laughs> jazz band, etc., like I was like the blackest person they've ever met. Like I was like, they couldn't get any blacker than me. But then when my friends, like in school like I was like jokingly known as the white boy right and and that never I never lost sense of that mm-hmm. right um, there's always kind of this code switching that that I have to do and even being an engineer here at the University of Michigan like not a lot of black people in the college of engineering like not a lot of black people in the University of Michigan in general like population is low mm-hmm. percentage wise college of engineering even mm-hmm. smaller right <clears throat> um, so I was very well aware of this in the mark in the world of music lot lots more um, representation, but then come to business school, low representation again. Apple, really low representation, right? So I've always been aware of who I am and the place the place that, I, that I'm in. Um, so to, and working with Matthew was the first time that I worked for a black man. Like that was awesome. Like I worked, he was my boss, right? Um, and my client was a black woman. Like it was, it was not lost on me uh, what that meant. Um, and when I left working with with Music World, um, I went to an agency called Big Fuel, and after that, I went to Translation, which was owned and operated by Steve Stout, a black man who was a record executive for so, like super successful record executive, then became an advertiser, super successful as well. And this is a guy who I would say is cut from the same cloth in considering his career trajectory. And again, black man like running it, you know, and that never lost on me at all. So now here I am in academia, again, low representation, mm-hmm. especially as a faculty member. Um, I'm hyper, I'm not hypersensitive to it, but I'm hyper aware of it. And because of that, 
I, um, if you've ever taken any of my classes, you know, I talk a lot about kind of who we are and how we fit in the world and understanding people's perspective. That the world we live in is socially and culturally constructed. And those things are, the building blocks for those things are experiences that we've had and the, the, the beliefs that we, that we adopt over time. And if we really want to understand people, we have to understand their backgrounds. Just because I'm black, does it give fact, does it give rise to the way I see the world alone? And understanding that people are multi-layered like that, I think, is is not only responsible as marketers, but I think that is the right thing to do as citizens in this world. How do you like to kind of discover where someone's from and like what really makes them be themselves? Because it can be hard just in casual conversation yeah. to really know what makes someone them. Well, so that's the idea. So think about um, marketers, right? We have tons of data at our disposal, like tons and tons and tons of data. And we sort of put pieces, we, we kind of take those pieces, we put them together to create a mosaic around who people are. And it's, it is effective, but mostly it's efficient for us. But if you really want to know people, you got to sit down and talk to them. And they don't happen in the first conversation, the first five minutes, you just spill everything out, totally right. take everything out of it. What happens is that I ask a question or we're just kind of just talking. I'm like, huh, it's interesting you said that. Where did X, Y, and Z? And then we just start telling each other our stories. And as these stories unfold, we start to get a sense of the lens by which people see the world, right? When it comes to data, like data is valueless. Data doesn't have an opinion, right? We input our opinion on data, we extract insight out of it. But if we don't have a true representation of the people that is understanding why people do what they do and how they see the world, then the data will always be flawed in that way. So as marketers, like the good marketers do ethnographic studies where we immerse ourselves mm -hmm. in the culture that we're curious about, right? So if I want to know about hip hop heads or I want to know about sneaker heads, I'm going to spend time with sneaker heads. I'm going to go to sneaker con. Watch how they talk, how they move, what they wear. Like I'm gonna figure out what I'm, I'm going to get closer to the culture by being intimate, by being a part of it. And the same thing goes for us as people, right? Like it's easy to size someone up based upon the box that I put people in, and we all put people in boxes, right? It's not like that's not a racist thing at all. We all do it because the brain can only take so much information at a time. So we put people in boxes to make sense of the world, <clears throat> and that's how stereotypes are created. But the things that and stereotyping is fine in that way, but what's important is that we spend the time to get to know people and allow them to come out of that box, right? Okay. Um, and the way that happens is just through empathic conversations. Yeah, for sure. And it, requ it requires investing in people to do that. And oftentimes business people, particularly marketers, we have a one quarter to get our numbers up. Yeah. I don't time for conversations. I need to get right at it. So I'm blasting with messages based on the demographic data I have about them. But if we really want to know people, we got to talk to them. We got to walk a mile in their shoes, see the world through their their eyes, adopt their lenses, which is the definition of empathy. And you've been in business in so many different facets. And how would you compare kind of the executives or just the best people who use that empathy versus? all of the executives who are just trying to hit their quarterly numbers because it is it is tough it's bad it's tough and it, it is it's a, it operates on a spectrum i don't think that any of them are like polar like i only care about the numbers we're altruistic people you know so people care about people not people who only care about people and don't think about the business side of it right it's, it operates on 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 a spectrum you know i i credit so i i have these different pieces parts of my life 
that strung together don't make a lot of sense. But to me, when I look back at them in the rearview mirror, I can tell where I got particular skills from. Right. So my engineering side helped me think about things in a very um, logical, linear fashion. Right. Like you know, A plus B equals C. Therefore, right. Um, as a musician. Like I was empathic at the, like I learned to be vulnerable, right? Like you can't write songs and not be vulnerable. So I think about like my, like how I feel and then how someone else might feel. And it really helped me exercise what it might be to be an empath, right? Um, and I, I credit a lot of that to the musical side, just like writing songs and thinking about what it might feel like to have your heart broken or what might it feel like to break the heart of someone that you love, right? Like, and you're constantly putting yourselves in the shoes of other people mm -hmm. to understand the feelings on both sides, right? It's like a playwright. A playwright has to be able to write from the perspective of two different characters, but also think about the audience watching the two different characters and seeing themselves inside the bodies of those two different characters, right? So it's sort of meta that way, but it requires great empathy. The business side is thinking about, so what does that mean for consumption? What does that mean for how we exchange products and services or goods? Uh, we exchange money for products and services or time, attention, and, and the alike. <clears throat> and I think that the, the executives who I've seen do that well are those who typically come from different walks of life. Like they were social scientists in their undergrad, right? They studied psychology, sociology, anthropology, got an MBA, and then now they're in the world of business, right? Like I, those people, I feel like they have been trained to be empathic, at least. Uh, conceptually, um, and they find themselves in the world of business, not only thinking about the business from an empathic perspective, but also leading their their organizations empathically as well. Yeah, definitely. And it's so cool to see how, you know, people are becoming so multidisciplinary and yeah. being able to cross over, like you were, you know, engineering, music, business, and then blending yeah. all the three together. The, the best research is interdisciplinary that way. Right, the best research takes mm -hmm. from different. I mean, that's and when we do lit reviews for research, we're looking at literature from different mm -hmm. disciplines about a particular construct, a particular subject matter, to look at it from different perspectives to see what it really, really is. I think mean, that's where you get really meaty learnings. Yeah. yeah. Um, so before we kind of wrap it up then for today, do you have any like last words of wisdom for us and for anybody that's going to be listening to this? Yeah. You know, I think that so there's a lot of you know there's a lot of. Uh, there's a lot of things that I can, that I've learned about my, from, from life um, that I'm certain people could, could benefit from. But I think that the, the most important thing, for me at least, is that I found, I, I found that my success was hardly any, was hardly any result of me being so great. Right? Like I, I think that people really invested in me and the places where I excelled came because someone took a chance on me. Someone saw potential in me, right? They invested in my potential. Like they didn't see my resume. It was like, oh man, you'd totally be great at this job. Come on in. Like it never was that way. Mm -hmm. I worked at Trans I worked at, you know, at Music World. I never worked for a record label before at that kind of level. But Matthew said, hey man, like these pieces make all the sense in the world. Come on in. Right, when I worked at Big Fuel, my first time working at an agency, never been in an agency before, but Avi Savar, who ran the age, who found the company, said, man, you have all the pieces, let me help you put them together, right? Translation, I, I built the social practice in the agency. I had only been working in advertising for nine months before then, 
right? I built the, the, the practice there because Steve Stout said, I see something in you, put the pieces together. Even here in academia, like I've only been teaching for like two or three years before I came to Ross. Um, but you know, my colleagues here saw something in me. And I think that, you know, there's a level of humility that we need to have as you traverse this world into your, your practice. And that like you can focus on making yourself as good as absolute possible, right? Like you should be trying to realize your potential to its fullest uh, fidelity. Um, however, we have to develop relationships and those relationships are the, the people who open up doors for you. They see your potential. Um, so I would say invest in your potential, but make sure that you have people who can see your potential happening and they can open up doors for you along the way. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Michigan Story. If you liked it, check out our other episodes, follow us on Instagram at The Michigan Story, and DM us if you or anyone you know of wants to be on the show. And we hope to see you back in 2020 because we'll be back with some amazing guests, including a good friend of the Dalai Lama. Happy holidays.